Hello, my name is Ran Bowen and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honouring the traditional owners of the unceded land on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Joe and I pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We are extremely excited about our guest for today's episode. Her name is Celeste Little. Celeste is a well-known writer, a trade unionist, a proud Arende feminist, and the Greens candidate for the Cooper electorate right here in Melbourne. She's also responsible for one of my favourite Twitter feeds, as you'll hear later on. As I've already mentioned, we were very keen to speak with Celeste for quite a while now, and we're especially grateful that she spoke with us from her home in isolation with COVID. All right, that's more than enough from me. Let's get into our conversation with Celeste Little. Hello, so I'm Joe, and this I'm is, Ron. That's Ron. <laughs> Welcome to the Flow Artist Podcast. So we're here today with Celeste Little, which we're really excited about. And just before we get into things, I'd just like to begin by acknowledging that we live and work and record this podcast on Wurundjeri land as part of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. And it's a real honour today to have Celeste joining us as a powerful First Nations representative. And yeah, I guess I just pass it over to you, Celeste. How are you going today? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. People are pretty aware online that I'm currently in COVID isolation, but I'm coming out the other side of that. So yeah, getting there. (laughs) Beautiful. So perhaps we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yep. Yep. So Before I begin too, I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm coming in from Wurundjeri country here in the beautiful Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'm an Arunda woman whose traditional lands Mbantwa, so Alice Springs, and then east and southeast are there. And, you know, Dad's side of the family, mum's side of the family, Clifton Hillborn Collingwood supporters. (laughs) So... Yeah, as a as a traditional owner from elsewhere, I just wanted to acknowledge that the Wurundjeri have never ceded their sovereignty, that a treaty or sovereign agreement is yet to be negotiated for use on these lands. So as a traditional owner from elsewhere, I pledge my solidarity in their ongoing struggle for justice. Yeah, so I've lived in this area, which is encompassed by the greater electorate of Cooper, if you like, for the since 1997, but I was actually born in Canberra. We lived there till I was nearly 14 years old and then we moved down to Melbourne and I, I lived and went to and finished my high school in the outer southeastern beachside suburbs before I ran screaming over the north over to the northern suburbs to to go to La Trobe Uni and I've been in this area as I said pretty much ever since with the exception of a couple of years in the middle so yeah (laughs) nice and I understand when you did move to Melbourne you were one of the only Aboriginal kids in your school is that right and yeah how how was that that was really hard. So, so yeah, that that's right, Ron. I, I think apart from one term that I remember when I was in year eight, 
and there were two other strangely um there were two other aboriginal kids in my in my class apart from that one term I was the only identifying aboriginal student in the school funnily enough I wasn't the only kid with aboriginal heritage in the entire school and I found that out later but I was the only one out there identifying and part of that was because I, I guess I was visible, so I'm definitely not a white person um, and people people could see that when I walked in. But also, yeah, I come from, well, Canberra, most people think of Canberra as a very sort of white-collar, privileged white place with a bunch of educated lefties in it, which is not untrue. But at the time that I was growing up there, um, there was a huge Aboriginal community that was associated both with the local mob there, the Ngunnawal and Gambri people, but also with things like the tent embassy and the public service. There are a lot of Aboriginal people working within ATSIC and other Aboriginal departments. And so we had a lot of relations from dad's side of the family that were also living in Canberra in the time. And so it was kind of like I went from this community where I was frequently hanging around with a lot of Aboriginal people at given times and there were support networks in the schools for Aboriginal kids to an environment in the outer southeastern beachside suburbs, which was an incredibly monocultural area where there were no support networks whatsoever. So it was really isolating. It's really tough. I did experience racism at school, but more it was the veiled sort of racism. So, you know, being picked on weirdly because I was visible or outspoken in some way. Yeah, it was it was that sort of type. And I kind of wish that though Others who, who did have heritage have been a little bit more out there because it probably wouldn't have been so isolating. Yeah, such an isolating experience. The benefit was that I ran over this side of town and found not just an incredible Indigenous community but an incredible multicultural lefty community that, yeah, that has been my home since. <laughs> Nice. And I'm an avid follower of you on Twitter. It's one of the highlights of my Twitter feed. And I, I remember you posted recently about how you read out the poem No More Boomerang in assembly one year. And, you know, coming from New Zealand, I, I'd never heard of this poem before. And it just blew me away, actually. So could you please talk about how that poem affected you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I think of that incident and sometimes I um think back to I have no idea to this day how the teachers when I got up and read that in assembly how they felt about me reading it out. Um <laughs> because it's it's a confronting poem. Mm. It's a confronting poem. It contains a lot of confronting language, you know. It was written by Udru Nanakal incredible Indigenous woman and poet, activist, you know. Yeah, so, like, so many, so many things. But the funny thing was that I was this, I don't want to say massive loser when I was in Year 9, but I spent an awful lot of time in the school library during lunch 
because, you know, I, I was feeling quite isolated at the time. And I found the book of her poems in that library and I read them. And that one in particular, you know, just kind of jumped out at me because the, that whole sort of how strongly she spoke about the impacts of colonisation, you know, the whitewashing of culture, the being forced into forced into religion, being made to feel ashamed of your body as part of the process of colonisation. Yeah, and what she saw as the ultimate impact of all that, which was the destruction of humanity. Yeah, it really, really hit home to me. But the assembly, I read it out, and I think I described this, well, I don't think, I know I described this in my chapter that I wrote for What's it called? Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, which is edited by Anita Heiss. But the assembly was a multicultural assembly that one of the teachers had organised. And essentially what they'd done for that assembly was get an Aboriginal football player to come up and speak from North Melbourne, I think he was, one of the McAdam brothers and Adrian, sorry, and myself. And that was the assembly. And so, <laughs> so that's what I got up there and read. And, you know, some kids in my school came up and said that was really amazing after I'd done that. And it was this sort of moment, you know, given that I'd had such a horrible time at that school prior to that, it was kind of a turning moment because through Ujuru Nunuckle's words, I kind of found my own words. So I learned how to stand up for myself more and more after that point yeah so that was that was the impact it 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 reflected my experiences but her words also gave me a voice you yeah, know that's amazing I, th- I think for me as well that just you know e- each verse is so concise and, and kind of brutal and it also sort of it talks about you know having your culture taken away from you and then kind of a lesser version sold back to you it's yeah Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and you know my grandmother was a stolen generations woman her story was in this exhibition which you can find audio files actually of her recording which was called between two worlds and it was I think it came out in about 1994 and so you know it that poem kind of really did speak to that experience because, you know, her, her culture was forcibly removed from her in that experience and then my dad experienced the same thing being sent away to a convent school. And so as a kid in white suburban Melbourne, you know, isolated, being experiencing racism due to my Aboriginality but not necessarily having the tools to defend it because of the processes of colonization you do find that you grab onto various bits of bits and pieces of aboriginality as what you're told they are and finding your own voice later on i think is an experience that a lot of kids who've grown up in that sort of situation can relate to yeah <laughs> And to flow on to something that I've actually taken from your blog about section, about writing, 
and I'm going to quote you here if that's okay. Yep. I find an honesty in writing and an ability to frame ideas much more clearly than if I was speaking them. Most of all, there is the therapeutic value. Writing can be a way of communicating the hard stuff so that others can relate and it no longer eats away at you because you own it solely. And that to me just was such a powerful expression of the writing process for you of making sense of your own inner world and also inviting other people into your perspective and taking it from an individual burden to like here's a shared thing that we can all work on but a lot of what you write about it's really important and like really emotionally loaded topics like the racism we've been talking about like is it re-traumatizing to see your carefully chosen words like out in the world and sometimes being deliberately misunderstood it's a really funny thing because I've got a bad habit, Joe, of not revisiting stuff that I've um, written. Oh, maybe that's like self-care. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it is. And, and you know, not, not watch. There's if people, people have referred to, I was on Q&A one time and I've been on TV a few times and I've never watched myself on television. And so they'd be talking to me about that and i go, Oh, yeah, I think I said that, but I've never watched it to verify. Sometimes it can be like that. And unfortunately, so where do I want to start with this? It's it's complicated. Writing the blog gave me an opportunity to write stuff in my own words, in my own space, and written forms of communication because I had ear troubles as a kid that didn't get properly diagnosed until I was about seven. Written forms of communication have long been my more natural way of communicating. So so writing things down and ordering my thoughts in certain ways came most naturally in the written form and being able to put them out there on the blog gave me an opportunity to take space and communicate back to people. The thing with my blog was that it started up as an anti-media space. So people often laugh when I tell this story because I started it because there were such a, so few rather Aboriginal voices in the mainstream media. And the ones that were in the mainstream media at the time I started the blog, which was 2012, I want to say, were carefully curated. They were often people who would reinforce the views of the mainstream media and what they wanted to put across about Aboriginal people rather than us speaking for ourselves or radical left perspectives of Indigenous people being portrayed, which is where I come from, you know. But I started writing and then within six weeks of starting the blog, All of a sudden, I was contacted by an editor from Fairfax wanting to publish my work. And so my anti-media space weirdly became a media space and I became a media figure in some way, shape or form um, to the point where I've now had numerous columns and I've written for so many different publications that I've lost count. Yeah, and what I've really enjoyed is is where I've been in supportive media environments where they've allowed me to just talk about topics and take apart big issues impacting our communities from 
the way I see it and put together the arguments, you know, that I've heard from in the communities or that I've done research on. What I've really loved and what has happened with some editors is that they kind of expect you to open up a vein and bleed all over the page for them. You know, there's we, we can't convey an opinion without, as far as they're concerned, without it, you know, us relating it to our own experiences. And it's traumatising enough a lot of the time to write about the sorts of things that Aboriginal people are going through in this society without also having to make it relate to your own experiences in order for non-Indigenous people to see it as being a valid view. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually really insulting that you can't just be a professional journalist and write about an issue without having to, like you say, like bleed into the article. Like mm. white men don't yeah. have that kind of burden placed upon them when they write about different issues, even if it does relate to them personally. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a double-edged sword if you do too. So if you if you do bleed all over the page for the editors, as I said, you're often seen as being biased, you know, towards Indigenous people. You're you're creating a biased view, but that bias isn't seen with the writings of white men. They're seen as neutral and as authoritative in a way that we're not unless we're talking about our own relationship to some sort of thing. But white men are not neutral we know that you know they they very much are the dominant sort of narrative that we see everywhere yeah and so you've kind of spoken about your writing process like it's really considered it's really internal and you have time and space to put your thoughts together have you had to kind of change brain gears moving from you know, a quiet writing space to a debate or like a live media interview? Or have you spent so long thinking about these issues that the words all just flow pretty freely now? Nowadays, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty good at having, you know, being able to convey the words and the views concisely. One thing that writing has taught me so often when I do write an article, what actually makes it um, in front of you, sorry, for those at home I'm doing the hand signals, <laughs> is say six to 800 words, which is the average size of an opinion piece. Usually I'll write about 2,000 and then hack the crap out of it so that it is concise and all of that. Yeah, you end up becoming a very good editor of words through that process and I've really found that that's helped me concisely shape the way that I speak as well when it comes to issues so I can hit key topics rather rather concisely and rather pointedly so that, well, in, in the hope rather that people are able to then just pick them up and go, um, there's always, you can't avoid it, there is always someone out there who will try and twist your words or use them back against you. Yeah, it's really unavoidable. There's Facebook pages that exist purely for that purpose, actually, <laughs> but particularly when it comes to Greens commentators or something like that. But, yeah, you know, generally speaking, it has helped 
the development of writing skills has helped my my verbal communication skills when it comes to interview formats and all of that sort of stuff. And so we've kind of just been speaking about how writing has just been such an important part of your self-expression and also other people's writing such an important support and just seeing the way that the arts and music are just totally not supported through COVID by our current government and aren't getting a lot of support in their upcoming budget either. It's really disturbing because this is our humanity and this is how we deal with the world. And I know that you really value Australia's cultural ecosystem and the role that the arts can play like in our collective healing. How are the Greens planning to support the arts in the future? Well, definitely through more arts funding. Like, you know, we've continually seen cuts to arts funding when this is what we should be bolstering, you know, particularly in Cooper where we have so many amazing musos, writers, painters, everything else. They weren't able to exhibit, they weren't able to do gigs, they weren't able to launch albums, they weren't able to put on plays, you know, they weren't able to make a living during COVID and they weren't able to bolster their income through hospo jobs either. So through not only funding the arts but strengthening social safety nets as well so that people, you know, when when these things happen, people are actually able to live, to keep creating, to have other spaces that they can continue working in so that they can t- continue creating more of the incredible stuff that we do see in this, as you said, arts ecosystem. And yeah, the arts definitely need significantly more funding. I think that despite the fact that Australian artists frequently punch above our weight when it comes to the global perspective, they're so undervalued. A lot of people end up making their livings overseas and that shouldn't be the case. We need to be trying to keep venues open, art spaces open and keep people supported so that they can keep creating. And I mean, we all needed it so much when we were in lockdown. It's like, that's what keeps you sane. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the opportunity to just plug. I saw a lot of a lot of people engage with the arts really struggling with mental health issues during, well, you know, and not engaged in the arts, but definitely ones engaged with the arts struggling with mental health issues because they weren't able to create, they weren't able to put stuff out there, they weren't able to engage with their audiences and, you know, so much of arts is also audience feedback or that buy-in or, you know, arts is, always two ways it's 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 the people who create it and then the people who interact with it that make it so yeah it, when you take those things away the impacts of that mentally are just extraordinary yeah and we're in this kind of weird place right now where like COVID absolutely still is an issue, as I'm sure you <laughs> are aware of, but like <laughs> our government's just kind of pretending that it isn't. Like moving forward, what changes would you like to see as we, quotation marks, live with this virus? And if there's a future pandemic, like what would you like to see done differently? Oh, gee. There's so much that I would like to see done differently. And it's kind of, um, I feel like, that's where I want to start. So during our second wave of COVID in Melbourne, 
one of the things that we saw was, that was utterly devastating was this virus just run rampage through the um, aged care sector. And we lost so many elderly people to this virus. So many people lost their parents and their grandparents who were living in aged care to this virus. And that was like there were so many reasons why that was. One was that aged care has been privatised and outsourced. So the looking after the elderly, the people who've, who've given, you know, their entire lives building up society, bringing up families, paying their taxes, whatever else, given their lives and should be able to just have a nice leisurely retirement, um, seeing our seeing out their twilight years having the best time ever have become a for-profit entity which is just extraordinary you know so I'd love to see aged care become publicly funded you know in a public entity again I think everyone is who who is lucky enough to reach a nice elderly age has the right to be taken care of in that age, you know, has the right to live the best life that they ever can as they see out their years, you know, and should, you know, should be able to do so on a on a decent pension with all supports in place. One of the biggest reasons why it flowed through the aged care sector was that a good portion of the aged care sector is being staffed by casually employed aged care workers, some of whom, you know, weren't making enough money on one job. So they were working between several aged care homes in order to just put food on the table. Again, you know, we need to see a a severe reduction in casual contracts, you know, short-term fixed-term contracts, and we need to see a lot more stable employment with a lot better conditions such as sick leave, annual leave, you know, all the sorts of leave that support workers in place so that people can work one job, can bring home a decent income and aren't spreading viruses between vulnerable groups. I think the other thing that I saw that was glaring was a massive, massive hole in the public health sector. So, you know, where there should have been a significant amount of more funding in healthcare, public healthcare, um, there wasn't. And instead of instead of focusing on bolstering public health at a time when it was needed, we saw a lot more policing measures come into play. We saw our our public quarantining system being run in private hotels and being overseen by private security guards, some of whom had been, you know, hired again on incredibly precarious contracts. So I was spreading it between workplaces in order to make a living. So if there were things that I would like to see come out of the pandemic, it would be a brilliant social safety net, like, you know, the um, bolstered, increased, increased all pensions, you know, better work security for all, a much better funded public health system and definitely a lot more public aged care going on. Yeah, they're things that just jump out at me straight away. (laughs) 
It seems like as well, you see stories from Europe about aged care being a lot less institutional and a lot more about creating community. And I don't think that model really goes with a for-profit private company because that company is for profit. So they're not necessarily going to invest in things that aren't a financial return, but are an emotional return for the people and their families living there and for the whole of society to kind of benefit from the wisdom of the older people rather than them just kind of being institutionalized, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you know, we and we see some people taking some independent action too, you know, because because the aged care system has become so for profit. Here, I'm hearing more stories of like elderly women, four of them buying a house together and just choosing to live together in their own community. I think that if people don't want to go into institutionalized sort of settings for for their twilight years. People should be supported to stay at home for as long as possible as well. Like the elderly have earned that right. They've earned the right to be supported in their old age. Before we go on, I just wanted to remind you that you can use our discount code MACFLOW at markaloo.com to get 10% off. You'll support the podcast and a great sustainable Australian company. The Markaloo is a set of nesting domes on a wooden base that you can use for self-massage, stability and proprioceptive awareness. It's such a great portable and accessible tool that really opens up new movement possibilities. And it's a great addition to chair yoga, adding stability challenges to a floor-based practice or for anyone who loves self-massage. The shape of the Markaloo domes are actually designed to be helpful and comfortable to hold for people working with arthritis or peripheral neuropathy, and their nesting nature allows you to gradually increase load. Check out our link in the show notes for all our Markaloo resources, including some free video classes. And another thing that I've seen you write about quite a lot, which was how the Andrews government focused on putting a lot of money into a giant prison rather than community support and healthcare and also just public housing for people who don't have a home right now. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and maybe also explain the difference between social housing and public housing? Because I'm not sure if that's clear for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, the difference between social housing and public housing is that public housing is owned by the government, is administered by the government and The government is therefore responsible for things like maintenance repairs. You know, the the rent is is decided at a certain amount of people's income and that and is fixed. Social housing is kind of like outsourced public housing. So the government then will outsource the maintenance, the rent collecting and all of that to not-for-profit organisations or sometimes for-profit organisations in order to maintain the properties. So so social housing is the sorts of housing that maybe a religious organisation might take care of or, oh, I don't know, and any number of other sorts of organisations. My thing is that we need more public housing or stop. People do need to become a little bit more aware of the differences because social housing is used an awful lot of the an awful lot by the government when they're talking about building more places for people to live. 
But what they're actually proposing is housing that they're then going to outsource to other organisations in order to administer. And who controls the quality of how those places are then administered from that point or what sort of ethics comes in? Like if it's a religious organisation and that religious organisation, for example, opposes the rights of gay and lesbian people to just be and won't house them, then then where's the responsibility for them to house it? You know, it, those sorts of complications come in when public housing is outsourced. So public housing is what we need and what we need an awful lot more of. With regards to the Andrews government and what I saw, so, yeah, Definitely a lot, there was a lot of money put into building a lot more prisons and a lot more prison places during COVID. In fact, Andrews in 2020 announced that part of the COVID recovery scheme was going to be the hiring of 300 new corrections officers. And I was just gobsmacked by that. But it was interesting to see prisons being built and and corrections being reinforced, you know, running alongside what was things like, what were rather things like fines for not wearing a mask or for protesting even when it was COVID safe or like those um, protesters at the Mantra who were in cars and still copped fines, you know, fining the fines for non-compliance I remember reading the statistics on that non-compliance with the Andrews government's COVID directives. It was found that the African Australians and Aboriginal people were were incredibly overrepresented represented in the finding data. So they've been, you know, people who are from lower lower SES backgrounds and people of colour were disproportionately being fined for not adhering to COVID directives. And I did get into some arguments at the time because we had measures. I'm a collectivist. I was definitely all for staying at home in order to protect the vulnerable in our society, but where a rule didn't make sense, so say the curfew or spending time outdoors, like we're all spending time indoors, but... The COVID, the rates of COVID transmission outdoors are significantly lower. So we should have been spending more time outdoors than what we were indoors anyway and doing, doing so as much as possible. Where those rules didn't make sense, I started to question them and there was a lot of backlash. It's kind of, I also think too, sorry, I am going off on a tangent to your question here, Joe, but one of the thing, one of the other things I noticed, I brought up the protesters, the refugee rights protesters at the Mantra Hotel. The Black Lives Matter rally organisers also copped fines for organising that rally. But what one of the interesting things of that rally, which I've said many times, was there was the mask mandate going on at that time, but Due to the Andrews government, it was also it had also been made illegal to wear masks at rallies two years earlier. So we're breaking the law a while, adhering to the law. Is that one? The final thing was like, not that I support the freedom marches or the anti-vaxxer movement, 
But when I started seeing police being armed to the hilt with assault weaponry turning up to protests, as someone who spends an awful lot of time at Indigenous rights protests, union protests, refugee rights protests, seeing people turning up with with assault weaponry firing pepper pellets into the crowd, I had a real concern for the future of protest in this state and what that might mean for us, what we might be up against from a civil rights perspective following COVID. So I think we need to keep an eye on that, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's some stealthy stuff that kind of got sneaked in while everyone was understandably preoccupied with a global pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, with so much happening within Australia, within your own electorate and globally, how do you decide, like, where to direct your energy and focus just to avoid getting burned out and overwhelmed and so you still can have a focus? <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress? <laughs> oh, this is such a great question to be asked by Flow Energy because I'm not sure I get the flows right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never sure I get the flows right. Like burnout is a reality and it is a reality of my life frequently and it is something that I definitely need to learn how to manage better (laughs) Um, because, you know, there's always something going on in the Indigenous rights movement. I'm also a union organiser. I'm also a community activist in other spaces And now, for some strange reason, I thought being a political candidate would be a good idea as well. So, (laughs) so, you know, I think that trying to go through what's going on in your head and trying to pick and choose what's important at any given time is incredibly difficult. The only thing that I'd really say is never, ever lose sight of the things that also make you happy, that make you feel alive. So so I frequently, <laughs> actually, I don't think there's many photos of me out on the campaign trail at the moment without wearing some sort of gig T-shirt or, or hoodie that has come from some sort of, some sort of live music thing. Me going to live music is something that I love and enjoy and it makes me, you know, it makes me feel alive. A lot of people getting out there and exercising is their thing, you know, meditating. My brother is a huge meditator, likes to just shut down for for 10 minutes here, half an hour there and just centre in, you know, in order to, to quiet the brain, to think on something else. Yeah, giving yourself the space to think on something else, to just sit back and enjoy and smell the roses as they say um stop and smell the roses yeah is is so important and learning learning when to do that and kind of being active in pursuing those opportunities to do so because if you don't do that then things can pile up that's the nature of being being someone who cares about social justice it seems like your dog is pretty helpful as well. <laughs> <laughs> she's a lovely little girl, you know. She, yeah, she's she's been a real blessing in our lives. So I got Stella from the Lost Dogs Home about six months ago. 
and, and she's a bit of a character. She's a bit of a character. She looked at, she walked over to a lead before and looked up at it. And I go, oh, no, oh, no. Ma- no, mate, I can't. Sorry, but we've got a friend coming to walk you soon. No. <laughs> and it seems you've recently gotten a bit of flack from white feminists for challenging a progressive female candidate. Like, how do you say, is it Jed Kearney or Ged? Kearney when you've lived in this area for 20 years or so and we note that Kath Larkin the Victorian socialist candidate hasn't really received the same amount of backlash so what do you think's going on there? <laughs> so much. <laughs> so, so Jack Carney is um, an amazing woman who has come from the union movement as well, was the ACTU president, was with the ANMF, um, sorry, Stop with the acronyms, <laughs> Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation for years before that, and you know, is from Labor left, and it was Labor's pick to be the candidate in this seat because this seat was nearly lost to the Greens back in 2016 when the then candidate Alex Batal won the primary vote, and the the sitting member um, David Feeney only held on to it due to where the Liberal preferences went. So so Ched Carney was was pre-selected to answer that. I was really disappointed by the reaction that I saw. And I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pretty blunt here, I've got to say, because some of the reaction that I saw, well, a lot of the reaction that I saw that was really negative that, you know, you definitely saw me share on Twitter, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of it came from union women, union women who are Labor-affiliated. And, in fact, one of the people who who had the biggest go at me that was incredibly disgusting and she gaslit me and all of that stuff was a former CEO of Emily's List, which is an organisation that exists to assist women within the Labor Party who are looking to to move into politics. So an organisation built to assist women to get into politics, never mind that they're Labor, she, she felt that she had the right to come and question my right to stand. You know, a lot of the other women that um, had a go at me were also women that I know from the Labor movement or, you know, were, were white feminists you know, that felt affronted that I would dare stand against Carney. And indeed, you know, it was everything from you should stand against a white Liberal guy to you should run for the Senate. Like telling an Aboriginal woman that she should go elsewhere to run when this is the community that I've sat in, I mean, sorry, I've lived in for over 20 years and we haven't had a sitting member in this seat who has actually lived in the electorate for, I think, nearly 30 years. So, you know, telling someone who lives who, who lives in the electorate and has done for a long time that they should go elsewhere was just extraordinary. But, yeah, the fact that so many of them came from the labour movement, so many of them came from organisations where they support other women to get into parliament, it was really disappointing. What was also really disappointing with that dialogue was the idea or disappointing and also offensive was the idea that people in this seat 
for some strange reason, because we've got we've got a Labor candidate who who is on the left and is an actual good woman, that people in this electorate somehow deserve less of a democratic choice when they're going to the the ballot box. I think I've said this so many times now, but this is the most progressive voting seat in the country. Over 80% of people who live in this seat cast a vote for a progressive candidate as their number one choice. So the fight here is not between Labor and Liberal, like it is in other seats that get a democratic choice. It's kind of the best progressive for the job. And that's the way it should be. So denying the voters in this seat the right to choose who the best progressive candidate is to represent them on the floor of parliament, just because there's a Labour woman who's already sitting in the seat, to me is extraordinary. Like, why are people here deserved less of a choice than anyone else in this country? It seems kind of weird as well, like, because you come from a union background, people kind of feel like you owe Labor this debt of loyalty, but they actually voted against a lot of issues that are really important to you, like the age of incarceration and fossil fuel. And like, they don't even align with your policies. And it just seems to be this assumption that, oh, you'll just go work for Labor. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Things like their refugee rights and continuing the Northern Territory intervention. And, you know, I people have known for a long time that I'm not a Labor person. You know, there's a lot of people in the union movement who, even though the Labor Party came out of the Labor movement, think that it no longer represents their values. And they've got a lot of reason to. Like, um, I think we're at the point now where if we don't get more progressive voices in the House of Representatives, the Senate does a bit of check and balance up in, you know, in their chamber. But if we don't get more progressive voices in the House of Representatives, then the Labor Party is just going to continue being dragged more and more to the right. And when you've got the shadow treasurer talking about how they're going to be the party for business or you've got Albanese talking about how anyone who tries to come here by boat is going to be turned away. I mean, we need people on the ground who have the space to challenge that. And unfortunately, no matter how progressive a local Labor MP might be, at the end of the day, they go into a party room and they are bound by the decision of the party room. So even when they don't believe something personally, they have to vote along the party line or risk expulsion from the party. So unless we get more crossbenchers, we're not going to get more democracy in that house. <laughs> mm. I just wanted to pitch real quick my um, idea for a campaign slogan for you, which is jet out. <laughs> yeah, bit of silliness. There. There we go. Oh, that's good. You know, <laughs> it's work in politics. <laughs> we haven't come up with a good three-word slogan for me yet, but you know, <laughs> I think the other thing with. Labor is it's just become so abundantly clear that we need to take climate action like right now, like yesterday. And so many, 
it just seems like so much of Labor's funding actually comes from fossil fuels and from mining. And we're kind of getting close to the end of the time. And this is like a really big topic. But I think for a lot of people, the Greens are kind of the hope that we have for our environment. Would you like to just take us through some of the policies that are actually going to like bring the change that we need? And can I bore you with my, like, you know, I have a master's in in communications and media studies talk here a bit because when I was a kid in the 80s going through the primary school system, I remember learning about chlorofluorocarbons and the greenhouse effect and how we had to take action now. And that was what we were being taught as kids in the 80s. And then something changed, you know. Throughout the 90s, that message got more and more muddied and then 2000s onward. And no matter how many scientific papers were peer-reviewed research, you know, how many projects were going on, how many ice caps started to shrink in size, no matter how much this was happening and it was being documented and it was being released, those reports weren't being picked up by the media weren't being acted on by Parliament. And that is because the fossil fuel lobby is extraordinarily wealthy and had the ability to squash the messages. So so politicians who were reliant on fossil fuel donations were not going to take action on climate change because there goes a big chunk of their donations. The news media that, again, you know, there's so many figures from from the mining world, from 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 the fossil fuel industry that have that are major stakeholders in papers and that, or that have good relationships, like you know, a Murdoch domination and his relationship with other wealthy people, including mining magnates. Um, again, we're not going to report truthfully on on the impacts of climate change and environmental destruction and what that means for our future in that environment. When I think about that and put that all together, that's the 30-year period of negative, you know, retrograde information going on, (laughs) just trying, just muddying up the public perception. So people are, I think, really aware now through through the actions of, you know, things like the school strike or even Papers like Guardian saying, no, we're not going to report untruthfully on climate change as an emergency anymore. People are becoming more aware. I think that people in this seat have always been pretty aware that there's an emergency that needs to be dealt with and have been environmentally active for a long time. So the sorts of policies within the Greens that really inspired me were hearing stuff like a pledge to to not just aim for 100% renewable, but 700% renewable. There is no excuse why a country with a climate like Australia that is so abundant in renewable energy, like our sunlight and our wind power here, cannot be building, you know, investing in research and technology building and then exporting that to the rest of the world to ensure that the rest of the world becomes more renewable as well. Land rejuvenation programs, you know, 
as a traditional owner of Central Australia, I've seen some of the benefits that can happen through land rejuvenation. I've got family members who live in, in Indigenous protected areas and have been getting rid of things like buffalo grass, which has been choking up waterways in the territory, you know, and removing things like feral cats so that you see the rejuvenation of the bilby population within those areas. You know, it's not too late to take these actions and take these actions too with the knowledges, with the with incredibly established ancient knowledges that have taken care of this land for, for millennia, um, informing it in order to ensure that there is a better future for tomorrow. But, yeah, we, we can't do this without being honest about what it is, which is that we need to take action and it needs to be decisive action now. We need to um, be getting towards zero, zero new emissions by 2030 and we need to be ensuring that we are continuing to develop that, those technologies and that research so that we do become rather than the world embarrassment on climate change, one of the world leaders. Absolutely. And, you know, like, was it Lismore having two, was it one in 100 year floods in the last month? And, you know, Antarctica, was it 30 degrees above average? Yes. I mean, yeah. this, this stuff's terrifying. It's happening right now. I was, oh my gosh, anyway. And I think like Lismore is actually a really awesome example of Indigenous-led community care because it seemed like the Courier yeah. Mail newspaper just stepped in, became this like meeting place and place to distribute things to the community and get food to remote communities and organise people who could fly helicopters to do that when the government just did nothing which is kind of like super heartbreaking but also super inspiring to see what a local community can do when faced with that kind of disaster. Yeah, it's, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Because we do have a, a governmental disaster relief fund and yet where was it going? And that was um, established in the wake of the bushfires and where did it go then, you know? Like massive bushfires followed by floods with an with a lovely big pandemic in the middle of it. Like people were really struggling at this time. But yeah, seeing that action out of Lismore and seeing, you know, seeing people plug in, but also seeing at the same time, who was it Peter Dutton? Started a GoFundMe to try and copy that. And I'm just sort of mate. You're in government. Why don't you release mm. some of the funding? Why don't you help these communities that are crying out for help because, because you know, environmental disasters due to climate change are whacking them? Like we've got, yeah, one thing that I do worry about an awful lot right now, you know, in the last couple of years we have seen the first sorts of waves of climate refugees happening. So people from Pacific Islands moving into, you know, moving into Aotearoa, coming here because their homelands are becoming more and more underwater. These little islands are sinking below below the sea and people are having to leave their homes due to the rising sea levels. We're going to see more of that as you know if there is if if there's not action and decisive strong action as a matter of urgency yeah mm. actually I'm, I'm a bit aware of how much time we we have left with you but I did, I did really want to ask you about 
I felt Adam Bant and his Google it mate was just brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. And the way he sort of from there just sort of segued into all the things he really wanted to say. I I know I just thought it was fantastic. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, yeah. I um <laughs> well yeah <laughs> as as you saw, I immediately copied it on social media. Someone said, what does Aranda mean? And I just turned around and Googled <laughs> <Yeah>. it, mate. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. I I really feel when it comes to the tabloid press and their, their, their ongoing need for gotcha moments, trying to, trying to make out politicians, leaders of parties and all that, to be fools by by hitting them with something that they're not just going to be able to rip off the top of their head. I kind of thought that Bant's approach to a similar gotcha sort of moment, that person was trying to, you know, hit him with a gotcha, what's the current percentage of this? Tell me it on the spot. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that with that Google it, mate. I'm going to talk about this, which is our actual policy, and we should be talking about policies and ideas in the lead up to the election. And the way that he refocused that was brilliant. I just wish that I really feel, you know, particularly as not as a not as someone who's running as a politician, but as a member of the public. I know that a lot of people are really uninspired right now. We've mm. gone through a rough couple of years. We're trying to rebuild lives and we're really uninspired by the political political situation right now. So what we really do want to hear from politicians isn't what gaffes they get wrong here and there. It's what vision they actually have for the future, you know. How are they going to support those who are the most vulnerable in our societies? How are they going to help communities that are rebuilding after natural disasters or, you know, or, or any other manner of things that have gone on? People want to be inspired by the politicians. So giving people the opportunity to actually hear the policies and engage with them and go, hey, hang on, they've got something I like, you know, that they're saying. So they're they're who I'm going with. That's what we want. Like ima- imagine if imagine if people could walk to the polls feeling inspired by their vote instead of grumbling all the way like we usually do, go, the mandatory voting in this country, why is it a thing? You know, mm. it'd be such a change. Yeah. I've kind <laughs> of loved seeing the memes that are meant to be sarcastic about the Greens policies and they're like free education, Medicare and mental health care covered by the government, legal cannabis, environmental (laughs) change. Like they're making out, it's like, ha ha, what a bag of laughs. And it's like, who has a problem with any of that? Like these are excellent policies that we all need. (laughs) My my favourite is always the the legal cannabis one because you can always get plenty of laughs out of that. I retweeted that. I mean, sorry. Shared that one on my Instagram the other day with good old past the duchy um, as my soundtrack for it. You know, you can have so much fun with it, but yeah, trying to make out that these are stupid ideas when really um, a lot of the population would like to see a mo- more robust healthcare system, um, free education, and a number of other more humane policies. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like, how are these things that are a joke? This is what I actually want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, people, I don't know, people just seem to be set like things can't be good, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so maybe I should get to our last question because, you know, I'm aware that you're probably not feeling the best today and we are so. Yeah, we super appreciate your time. Yeah, yeah. But my pleasure. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I, I guess our last question is if you could distill everything that you've learned in your life and everything that you teach and share down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? <laughs> it's my gotcha question. Yeah, yeah. I'm very much coming from this as from the perspective of an Indigenous woman who has lived, you know, through through the white capitalist patriarchy her entire life in this country, trying to decolonise myself, trying to decolonise the rest of the world. You know, I often, oh, come on. Yeah, you can tell I'm having trouble with the words right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, I think it would be that the one thing that that I definitely learned from my nana, my dad's mum, who was a stolen generation woman, an illiterate stolen generation woman who went out there with the women's camp to stop the damming of a um, waterway up in Alice back, you know, in in the 90s and was busted on I think it was some news report calling a local politician a bloody dingo is that you know if you can stand up and say you know make a stand if you believe in something make a stand and say it out and don't be ashamed to because there are so as an Aboriginal woman there are so many people who have tried to make me feel ashamed of of who I am in this society and had I have listened to them, had I have let that form my life, then I wouldn't be out there writing, I wouldn't be out there talking, I wouldn't be out there on Invasion Day with a megaphone yelling for land rights and I certainly wouldn't be running for for politics right now. Yeah, there's so many people who will try and shut you down and just continue to try and have your say. But also, whilst having your say, make sure that you're doing it to benefit others. Always think beyond yourself. Always think, you know, our interconnectedness is the most important thing. We are all connected in some way, shape or form. So try and do it to bolster other people. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Like, you'd just be making your nana so proud. And I've (laughs) got to say as well, like, you and the Greens are giving me so much hope and inspiration for the future when we've kind of come from some pretty dark times and I'm sure there's challenges ahead. So thank you so much for everything that you do. My pleasure. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Celeste Little. I think we could have spoken to her for another hour or so, but I'm glad that we got the chance to speak with her and hope she recovers well from her COVID isolation. As I mentioned in the interview, I really love the poem No More Boomerang, so we'll include a link in our show notes on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. You can also leave a comment there if you like, and we'd love to hear from you.
For our next episode, we're speaking with Nina Zolotow. Nina is an author and yoga teacher. She was behind the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog and book, and she spoke with us ahead of her new book coming out, Yoga for Times of Change. It's an absolutely wonderful book, and Nina has been an influence on my own experience as a yoga teacher, so look out for that very, very soon. Our theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul and is used with permission. Check out gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. He aroha nui maua kia koutou katoa. Big, big love. <laughs>